I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my upcoming trip to California. Then we're going to discuss the latest hearing on Capitol Hill with Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson facing grilling from senators about her record, as well as the book that Senator Cruz brought up, Anti-Racist Baby. And then we're going to talk about the escalating situation in Ukraine. And later on in the pod, Autumn and I sat down with Dr. Daniel Buttry, who used to teach at the seminary in Kiev, Ukraine. And we talk about what's going on in Ukraine and the trauma that refugees are suffering under. So it's going to be a good episode. Hope you stay tuned. Rainforest, volcanoes, coastlines with crystal blue water, fresh fruit and seafood. Join Good Faith Media for an immersive experience on Hawaii's big island. Discover brilliant night skies with our friend, astrophysicist Paul Wallace. Explore and have fun with your small group of adventurers. Join us May 21st through the 28th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Autumn, how are things in your world? Is spring sprung? Well, I don't think spring in Oklahoma has gotten the memo. You know, (laughs) you and I were in North Carolina with some of our friends last week um, celebrating CBF there and and interacting with people's whole faces, which was incredible. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that in North Carolina, their grass is green and their trees have leaves and their flowers are blooming. And our state just isn't quite there yet. It is not. In fact, uh, I think we were looking outside. It's around 35 degrees here. With a blustery north wind. Yes, it's (laughs) really cold. Yeah, I don't know why, but I'm I'm with you. I'm ready for spring and uh, warmer temperatures. I'm not ready for the tornadoes and hell that we get here in Oklahoma. But uh, could you watch your language on our podcast, please? (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) I apologize for that kind of uh, (laughs) language. Uh, I think it's something about growing up reading the Narnia books. And, you know, the punishment of the White Witch was that it was always winter and never Christmas. And so, to me, the inverse of that is if it's going to be cold, like, it needs to be Christmas. And once Christmas is gone, I have no use for this weather. (laughs) None. None. And there's something also symbolic about this particular spring with moving from pandemic to endemic. And you mentioned a moment ago, actually going to meetings where people are unmasked, fully vaccinated and boosted, but uh, unmasked. It seems like we are beginning anew and afresh and this spring symbolizes that. So any cold winds that come from the North, it's like, damn you cold winds, go back, go back, go back. We're ready for warmer temperatures and and hope to abound. So, uh, well, good. Well, um, I am speaking of warm temperatures, heading out to California this week, uh, over the weekend. Bless your little heart. I'm going to put you on the top of my prayer list, (laughs) brother Mitch. I really appreciate it. I mean, those, uh, you know, leftists out there in California need Jesus uh, more than anybody. Amen. And Amen. so I'm going out there to to give a witness, uh, sister. Good. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, really, I am going out to San Diego, California to attend a conference that I am super, super excited about. It is called Faith and Science 2022. Uh, This is an annual event that I am just now learning about, but one of its founders, Autumn, is Dr. Francis Collins. Do you know who Dr. Francis Collins is? 
Are you going to take my Baptist card if I say no? No, I'm not. But I okay. am going to take a couple of cards. Oh, one, no. I don't have many. <laughs> one, he wrote this fabulous book called The Language of God, and it talks about DNA and and oh, the incredible cool. science that went uh, went about finding uh, the DNA uh, formula, and it's just—it's a really—he is both a scientist and a Christian, and he thinks that those two do Shocking. not have to be opposed to one another. They work brilliantly together. But also, Doctor Collins has the—he's uh, a little bit infamous because he's Doctor Fauci's boss. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> kind of a big deal. Yeah, I didn't know Fauci answered to anyone. <laughs> yeah, he answers wow. to Collins. So. Okay, yeah. so and he's the founder of this organization. Yeah, he, well, he's, he's helped, he helped found it, and uh, so okay. he, he's going to be out there speaking. I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. Uh, also, uh, noted theolo- theologian from Oxford University, Alistair McGrath is going to be there. Uh, New York Times columnist uh, David Brooks is going to be there. So. I know David Brooks. I've read lots of David Brooks. Yeah, okay. So we are we're really excited about attending this conference and seeing uh, what they have to say. Hoping to get some interviews uh, for video and podcast purposes. So I'm really excited about it. That is exciting. I'm just picturing that their logo would be like Jesus with like a lab coat and a beaker. You know, <laughs> the, like, <laughs> if it's not, it, have them get in touch with me. I've got some marketing ideas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that. Uh, so uh, look forward to reporting back uh, to everyone uh, next week uh, after I attend the conference. Well, big news on Capitol Hill this week. Uh, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson faced grilling from senators about her past. Of course, Ketanji Brown Jackson has been nominated by President Biden to fill Stephen Breyer's spot on the Supreme Court. So did you watch any of the coverage, Autumn? I've read some of the coverage, but I haven't watched any of it. Well, what have you read and what is your analysis thus far? Um, Ted Cruz is still Ted Cruz. That's my analysis. <laughs> we may I, We may have seen the most... Ted Cruzy thing from Ted Cruz this week. Of all the Ted Cruises, he's the Ted Cruises. I'll just tell you. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. You know, Judge Jackson is this brilliant judge. Uh, got a, an impeccable history as a public defender, as uh, on the judi- on the judiciary. I mean, just an amazing person. And her opening statement and statements by others certainly, you know, give evidence to that. And then the senator starting started to ask questions, and you began to realize very quickly why the country is in the state it's in because of some of the leaders that we have. And you just mentioned one of them, the biggest, biggest. And, and I didn't think that the senator from Missouri – uh, can't remember his name at this time, but he's got a very punchable face. <laughs> <laughs> the good faith media does not condone violence. That's right. uh, Senator Hawley from, from Missouri. You know, I didn't think anybody could uh, outdo him, but uh, Cruz certainly did in his diatribe against CRT and bringing in children's book uh, by. Ibrahim Kendi, entitled Anti-Racist Baby, to ask Judge Jackson if she condoned such ideology. and he, Didn't he also ask her permission to be Asian? 
I don't know about that. I'll have to go look at the transcript. I think he, like, literally asked her permission if he could be Asian. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he's just... (laughs) I don't even know how you answer that question. Like, I I just... God bless her. Actually, I'm moving you down on my prayer list, and I'm moving her up. Because that's (laughs) a lot. That is a lot. And, you know, he brought in these huge displays. You know, God only knows how much those cost taxpayers. Uh, But, I mean, he just, he really went overboard and finally got down to his question if she uh, believed that children should be taught that they're anti-racist or that they're racist and need to repent of their racism. And there is this poignant moment where Cruz finally shuts his trap after asking the question. Bless him. And Judge Jackson begins. Senator, she starts, but then takes a deep breath and pauses. The Washington Post described that moment beautifully. When Judge Jackson uttered the word senator and took a deep breath for several seconds, It's as though she were letting the entire country, people of slavery, descendants of slavery, people of color across the country, take that moment to realize we still have to explain racism to the patriarchy. And it was though she was inhaling the spirit of all of her black and brown brothers and sisters around the country to give answer to this senator who is totally oblivious to it all. It's willful oblivion. Willful. (laughs) He's willfully oblivious. And and that's what I say. I wrote a column about it this week. It drops today on Friday um, that, you know, a lot of times we— we argue that people like Senator Cruz, and there are many others, who are willingly ignorant about all of this. But the reality is I don't think they are. I think they know exactly what they're saying. And they are using these moments to, to grasp— To posture themselves. To posture themselves, to hang on to power, to grasp for more power, because at the end of the day, they are theocrats that want to rule, not govern— but to rule from their position of power, and it is their divine right to do so because they argue God is on their side, and the rest of us be damned, and the rest of us shut up and know our place. And that was on full display at Capitol Hill this week. Judge Jackson did brilliantly. I think she'll be confirmed uh, to take Justice Breyer's place and become the first African-American just a female justice in the country, and I'm super excited about uh, her time on the court. Uh, I think she's going to be an outstanding justice. I I completely agree, and if she, if she can sit through this, she can probably do just about anything. Oh, I know. I mean, I just you know, not only Cruz, but there are others. I mean, mm-hmm. and just just the whole process in itself is just it's demeaning. I mean, they put themselves uh, on a higher pedestal literally mm-hmm. uh than the people that they're questioning so 
you know, they're looking down, and a majority, a vast majority are white men looking down at this female judge, and she's having to stare back up at them and answer their questions. It's just, it's just, it's, it, it demonstrates on full display uh, that we've got a long way to go in this country when we're talking about race. Mm-hmm. And she didn't bring race into no, it. No, she didn't. Did. she didn't. And that's the thing. They're going to say, well, she's making it all about. No, she's not. Like, no. they start. They started it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. so, at any rate, uh, we wish uh, Judge Jackson the very best and hope she gets confirmed quickly. Well, let's talk about the war a little bit uh, in Ukraine. Lots going on there. Uh, the Russians have escalated their bombing of. Maripol, as well as Kiev and other surrounding cities. Um, there's question that the Belarus uh, army is going to start getting involved. Chechnyan fighters have already shown up. Um, the reality is Ukraine's holding its own, uh, fighting off Russians, uh, destroying their equipment, uh, killing soldiers. It's been quite remarkable that this country has stood up to a superpower, maybe not quite a superpower these days, but uh, nonetheless a former superpower the way they have done. And uh, President Zelensky continues to reach out to uh, governments and countries all across the world asking for help, pleading for a no-fly zone. I understand the reasoning why NATO cannot um, implement an I- uh, a no-fly zone zone worried about the potential for World War III, but my gosh, we're all rooting for them. Uh, We're praying for them. I hope that we can do everything we can, flooding the country with money and weapons to let the Ukrainians defend themselves against this aggression. It's just absolutely getting worse. I saw a news blurb that the U.S. is going to welcome up to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees, and they are also planning to unveil a $1 billion in new humanitarian aid. So that's that's a step in the right direction, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And this week, President Biden flew over to Europe to join NATO leaders to talk about the situation in Ukraine. We hope that they can continue to support them in ways that is profitable for Ukraine uh, because uh, I believe President Putin and Russia feel painted into a corner now and that they are could use any possible weaponry uh, to bring this to a close, including mm-hmm. going nuclear, which I cannot believe I am saying that in 2022. But the potential for that is certainly there. There's also discussion about uh, chemical weapons. I just pray and pray and pray that it does not get to that point and that there's some way that Putin can find a way out of this and that negotiations can begin and that peace can prevail. But peace with justice, and that's an important element of that. Ukraine does not need to capitulate to a tyrant, and Putin needs to answer for these war crimes that he has committed upon the Ukrainian people. I hope that someone can find a way to talk to Putin. I don't know that that's going to happen, but I did see that one of his closest advisors stepped down two days ago. Yeah, I mean, there, and that's one of the things that we talk with uh, Dan Buttry here in just a moment, that there is uh, nonviolent resistance to Putin within Russia, and uh, it is growing stronger and stronger by the day. Uh, people are standing up and speaking out against this war. Um, I think the only way that he's going to change directions or be forced to change directions, if it happens internal, internally, 
either through one of his generals or one of the oligarchs who has had enough and sees the demise of Russia uh, coming quickly. And they say enough is enough and Putin must go. So I don't know what's going to happen over there. I do hope and pray that it comes quickly because more and more innocent people are dying each day in Ukraine, both on the Ukrainian side and the Russian side. I think that there are a lot mm -hmm. of Russian soldiers who had no idea why they were or were misled why they went to Ukraine and are dying for a war that they probably don't really believe in. So. So yeah. this has got to come to an end. Well, you and I this week sat down with uh, Dr. Dan Buttry, uh, who taught at the seminary in Kiev, Ukraine, many years ago. He is an advocate for nonviolent resistance and a searcher for peace and has done uh, seminars and trainings all around the world trying to help people find peace through nonviolent means. So it's a good conversation. Uh, did you walk away with anything after talking to, to Dr. Buttry? Yes, I really did. I felt hopeful. I didn't really understand um, as much about the history of the Ukrainian people. And that this, as a Texan, I can say this isn't their first rodeo. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, they've right. they've been conscientiously, you know, standing up to things with and without violence. And um, I just at the end of the day, I think the story that's going to be told is that Putin didn't know who he was messing with. Right. No, I totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. Well, Dr. Buttrey does a good job explaining all that. He also tells us a little bit about what he thinks is the kind of trauma that a lot of these refugees and uh, soldiers are going to be suffering over the years to come, and that it's uh, just really been a situation that's inflicted upon us all, but especially towards them. And so um, he's, he really does a nice job explaining that and outlining it for us. So it's a good interview. Uh, stay tuned, and uh, we'll be right back. Marvel at Pacific Coast Wells. Wonder in rainforests. Explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join Good Faith Media for a unique and immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Reverend Dr. Dan Buttrey is a global consultant for peace and justice. He is a prolific author, published both publishing both books and articles over several decades regarding the issue of peace. Dan taught conflict transformation training at the Baptist Seminary in Ukraine as part of his work as an American Baptist missionary at large, doing meditation and peace-building training around the world. He has also worked on the effects of trauma in war-torn countries. He is married to Reverend Sharon Buttrey, and they live in Michigan. Dan, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Well, then let's uh, start with Ukraine. For almost a month now, Russian aggression has been raining down on the good people of Ukraine. Having taught in Ukraine previously, what are your thoughts on this violent and egregious situation? My, my. Um, <laughs> it's very personal for me. I, I taught, uh, I, I think I've been to Ukraine seven times. Uh, I taught in a regular cycle every other year, 
at the Ukraine Evangelical Theological Seminary, which is on the northwest side of Kiev. And that's where the, uh, one of the Russian advances has been coming through. And, um, and the, my home church in Ukraine is uh, right in the battleground area. We don't know what it's like there. Um, many of the faculty and staff lived in the areas that uh, the fighting has been taking place in. Uh, most of them evacuated. My old friend, Fyodor Reichenitz, uh, theology professor, and um, uh, the one that invited me to come, stayed in his home many, many times. Fyodor has been one of the people who's been uh, bringing food to senior citizens and other folks that can't leave. Um, his office was destroyed by Russian missiles, his theological library completely destroyed. Uh, but this small staff at the seminary stayed uh, to to provide food for those in need. And uh, so I'm really, uh, I've been in close contact with him. I've been in close contact with another uh, former student of mine, Veronika Voloshina. Um, and I'll talk more about her in a bit, but she uh, was in the city of Dnipro, which is in the uh, eastern side of Ukraine, very near the uh, war zone from 2014 on. So uh, it's really... Uh, I've been in very, very close contact with both of them uh, almost daily. And, and uh, you know, my heart is there. I've been to those places. I, and and so, so to me, it's more of a heart thing than a head mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I can do the head analysis. I see this as a horrific war of aggression that's uh, um, and the, the degree of something we haven't seen since World War II. And we have the potential for uh, nuclear war. So I think it's the biggest crisis we've seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So as um, you talk to your colleagues who are fleeing Kiev, um, what what's going on in their mind? I mean, I just cannot imagine, uh, you know, one week leaving, living in a place like Kiev, uh, just a beautiful, you know, peaceful, uh, wonder one of the great cities of the world, and then just days later, it just being bombarded with bombs. Yeah. Uh, they must be going through a lot. Oh, it's, it's uh, terrible. Uh, uh, you know, my friend Veronica, I offered to uh, host some blogs that she would write because she was posting on Facebook, but with not just this is what's going on, but with spiritual reflections. And uh, she was eager to do that. So, so she's posted two already. And one was... Uh, it's all based on Ecclesiastes 3 and uh, with a different phrase for each blog. And uh, one was uh, time to choose. And um, uh, it was all about the decision that she made to leave. Um, and uh, she has a son in the Netherlands and she made it successfully there. But the whole decision, she talked about what happens when no decision is a good decision. Right. Uh, everything is is bad and costly. And tears your heart out, and so I think a lot of the Ukrainian folks are having their hearts torn out, and 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 it's it's not a situation that was, you know, this is a war that didn't need to be. It's a war uh, from the pride and aggression of one man, who is backed by a lot of other people with similar similar pride. I think it's mm -hmm. the the um, kind of the shame of the disintegration of the Soviet Union coming back to to. Uh, to, to be expressed in this arrogance of, you know, trying to regain uh, 
the dominion that once was. And um, we've seen it before in small scales in Georgia mm -hmm. uh, and in uh, Crimea and in eastern Ukraine, but now it's just in a whole nother level. And, uh, and the way that civilians are being targeted deliberately is, is also a, a uh, profoundly uh, hideous and, in my mind, evil um, uh, action that's going on. Fyodor spoke uh, about the importance of, of maintaining one's humanity amid this hell. Um, how do we stay human in a situation that's calling forth inhumanity? Uh, and right. that, you know, the yeah, Russians absolutely. are treating, treating the Ukrainians in totally inhumane ways, killing old people, killing children, attacking maternity hospitals, things like that. Totally inhumane. And and so the response can very much be to disintegrate and to meet that inhumanity with one's own destruction of, of humanity. And, 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 and uh, you would feel somewhat justified, right? Oh, yeah, because yeah. Some righteous, some righteous anger there. Okay, so you've written about trauma in situations like this one. And I thought it was really interesting how you brought shame into it. Because we know shame, even on an interpersonal level, has some really giant implications and can continue to fester. And so when you start looking at it on a national level, I mean, the World War II of it all, right? Absolutely. Um, but what kind of trauma are the people of Ukraine experiencing right now? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so much and so many levels, uh, you know, uh, losing loved ones, losing homes, losing a sense of, of the future. Uh, you know, Ukraine was... was uh, was a delightful place to be in many ways. Uh, a lot of uh, vibrancy. Their political culture was pretty crazy, but they 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 were making progress as a country. And they they also had, and this is something that I think Putin completely missed um, and miscalculated on. Uh, Ukraine has over a million people who are are deeply experienced nonviolent activists. Mm. They, they overthrew uh, Russian-leaning governments twice in the Orange Revolution and then in the Maidan Revolution 2014, I think it was. And, um, you know, some of my students were at Maidan and I was getting Facebook posts from us. You know, they're, they're shooting at us, they're shooting at us. And these, you know, over a million people and, and it was churches involved, interfaith. Uh, it was profound. And, you know, we're seeing Ukrainian resistance militarily, but there's also been a lot of nonviolent resistance. Uh, some of it's that showed up in, in, in um, uh, some of the videos, all the way from the old woman who was giving sunflower seeds to <laughs> yes. Russian soldiers so that when they died, something beautiful would grow. Some and, good and trouble, right? Good trouble. Into some <laughs> good trouble. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then there was this these groups that had a captured Russian soldier and they're helping line it up so that he can call home and things mm -hmm. like that and giving him yeah. tea. And, and, um, and so this maintaining humanity in the midst of somebody assaulting your very humanity uh, is, is really profound. And I, and, and I think would, if Russia would succeed in conquering uh, Ukraine, I think that, they would not be able to govern it. And, right. and we're even seeing that in the, in the cities that they've captured where protests are going, you know, people are still refusing to, to, uh, 
bow down and be intimidated. And so there's a strength there that is profound and mm-hmm. and I think that can be transformative in the end. And and uh um and that's really profound to see. And um you know, you mentioned trauma. Um, my wife and I, uh, we recently wrote a book that comes out of a lot of our training called Daughters of Rizpa, Nonviolence and the Transformation of Trauma. And there's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 21 that almost all of us in the U.S., when we've read it, uh, I mean, I've read the Bible through I don't know how many times, and I get to cha- chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, just flip the page real quick so that uh, I could get onto the good stuff. Because it's a horrible story of of murder and and just just all kinds of awful stuff that happens but if you look at it through a trauma lens you see all the responses to trauma you see a woman who lost five sons who just disappears from the story uh kind of the permanent victim uh, and so many people are like that uh and there's you know a lot of people already that are going to be experiencing that being stuck in their victimhood because of the horrors they've been through. Then you've got the people who uh, are uh, victims of trauma, uh, victims of aggression, and they become aggressors themselves. And so they turn their trauma into something where then they dehumanize in the name of what's happened Mm -hmm. to them. Uh, And we have that in this story. The Gibeonites, who are victims of Saul's genocide, end up wanting to kill the sons of Saul. And, uh, and doing that with David. Uh, and then you have Rizpah, a traumatized woman who cont- acts in nonviolent ways, ca- carrying out this incredible vigil over months over the bodies of her dead children. And she changes the heart of David and ends up with a reconciliation that lasts generations. Um, that even later after Saul- Solomon's death, when there's civil war in Israel, only one tribe stayed with the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. And that was the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe. And there's no record in scripture about how that reconciliation took place, except in what Rizpah did and the wow. reconciliation of David coming to, to meet her, uh, which I think was a public act of repentance on David's part. And so how does the trauma get transformed? And, that can take years. It can take generations. So let me tell one story, if I may, from Ukraine before this war. Uh, Veronika uh, has done a lot of, she went through our 10-day our intensive training and, and was doing amazing work in Dnipro. And uh, she invited me to come and co-facilitate with her uh, in a, I think it was three-day uh, workshop. And we had people from... Uh, the war zone, including uh, Donetsk, which was kind of the center of of the war in eastern Ukraine. And uh, this one woman came. And uh, the way that we deal with scripture in our training is it's very participatory. And and in uh, the second Samuel passage, we we have people read it and just wrestle with the text. And then I interview somebody who role plays the the first mother, uh, who Marab is her name. And uh, we talk about uh, what her feelings might have been and so on. Somebody just kind of uh, through kind of identification and empathy trying to enter into what her feelings might be. And then after that, we get into a kind of a cycle of of, um, kind of the victim survivor cycle, which shame is one of those things that um, I mean, she lost her five sons 
what's a mother supposed to do? Take care of her children. And she couldn't take care of her children. And even though you might scream at her, no, it's not your fault, you know? Uh, you can't tell a mama anything. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I have four. I get it. (laughs) Imagine them all being gone in a horrific act of butchery. Wow. And then we interview the Gibeonites, uh, somebody who, you know, plays them. And, and then after that, we act out the whole story. And you see so much more when you act it out. So I had asked for a volunteer to help because when Sharon and I are together, Sharon always acts out the part of Rispa. Um, and then I play David in the narrator, bounce back and forth. And um, so I invited somebody and this woman from Donetsk came, uh, came and I talked with her during the break, told her what we would do and made sure she was willing to play that part. And she agreed. She wanted to go ahead and play the part. So she's sitting in with the rest of the group. Nobody knows what her role is going to be. And, um, and so I tell the story, uh, about David, the famine in the land, because Israel had committed under Saul had committed genocide against Gibeonites. So I go meet the person who was the Gibeonite and together we grab seven participants and put them in these chairs and then slaughter them and praise God, you know, that uh, we've been able to do this. And, um, and then this woman uh, gets out of, of her, her seat and she, in, in her, her body language, she's like a tight coiled spring and she just, you can just sense the tension as she slowly walks toward those that are, you know, sprawled out in their chairs like they've been slaughtered. And then she unleashes this incredible scream. I mean, it's just this, this deep scream from the center of her being. It was so profound and, and shaking. Um, and, uh, uh, and then, you know, we act out the rest of the story, including the healing and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, afterwards, she came to me. And she said, thank you. She said, that scream was the work I needed to do. I've lived for two years under artillery bombardments. And we're just trying to survive day to day. You know, going out to get water is something for which you risk your life. Mm -hmm. And she said, I had to do that. Mm -hmm. I really needed to do that. So um, uh, I think that's one of the things that is is part of the trauma of the people yeah. of Ukraine now is that there are deep screams inside of everybody. Yeah, absolutely. You can't let it out. Absolutely. You can't let it out because you got to survive. Uh, yeah. you got to gotta do something. Yeah. And, and some people will deal with it in healthy ways years down the road maybe. Mm-hmm. Others will just, uh, that, that, that horrible brokenness may stay within them forever. And, um, and, and it can be a, a really... Um, horrible thing to see in a person's life and so i think part of the long-term healing is you know how do we how do we let the screams come out so that god's healing balm can be uh, be applied and and uh, that's going to be one of the ministries uh years down the road yeah, absolutely or four years down the road sure. i should say now, Dan, you mentioned nonviolent resistance uh that we have given witness to over the last four weeks since the the war has begun. Um, do you see a pathway towards peace? I mean, one of your books is even entitled Peace Warrior. Um, is there a way 
out of this because it seems as though Putin has painted himself into a corner and it's going to be total destruction of Ukraine or nothing, nothing less than that. Is there a way that people of good faith can advocate within Ukraine, outside Ukraine, so that this can come to an end quickly and peacefully? I would love that, uh, but I, I'm also um, I'm also very much a realist, having been on the lines. I, I came out of a military family and wanted to be a fighter pilot, um, and then I encountered the teaching of Jesus. Uh, in fact, one night I did a 180 about war and peace, um, um, and so that book, Peace Warrior, that's part of the, my story is 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 reclaiming my warrior side, uh, but baptized in the nonviolence of Jesus. Um, and the warrior side includes uh, strategic thinking, uh, skills, uh, uh, being willing to sacrifice oneself, uh, uh, but to do that through through nonviolence. Um, and uh, so so. There's a number of things. One is mediation efforts and trying to open that up, peace talks. Um, I, I don't see much of that happening right now. Um, I mean, there's stuff, but I don't think any of it's serious. Uh, but it still needs to be pursued. You never know what will happen. The second thing is, is nonviolent resistance, both in Ukraine and in Russia. And, and I think, mm. you know, I saw that one of Putin's longstanding key aides just resigned today in protest of the war. And I think that more and more people, and he left Russia, um, you know, we've seen some very creative things in Russia that have been done. Um, you know, that courageous woman on the news broadcast. Who yes, the, side. the cosmonauts in yellow and blue, right? Yeah, although they're backing off of that, but I don't know if that's true or not. But, well, just, you know, For but, me, it's going to be true. That's going to be my truth. Certainly, certainly the way that it impacted, you know. Yeah. Yes. And But it's like those kinds of things, uh, uh, the, the, the resistance that uh, that can undermine things because one of the tools that we use and this comes from uh the theory of gene sharp who uh, was probably one of the greatest theoreticians of nonviolent struggle and gene sharp talks about how every oppressive power is held up by various pillars and and so putin cannot do things on his own he needs an army that will obey his orders he needs control of the media he needs money he needs all these things, you know, and so things like sanctions are trying to pull out the part of the money pillar. Um, um, but uh, and media, you know, efforts to 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 counter what's said, uh, for example, what Arnold Schwarzenegger, his message. I don't know if you've heard that, uh, but he gave a powerful message to the Russian people. His mm -hmm. father yeah, was, good. was in the Battle of Leningrad, the Siege of Leningrad, which is now called mm -hmm. St. Petersburg. And he talked about how. Being an aggressor in such a horrific way shattered his father for the rest of his life. And he's pleading for the Russians, you know, you're setting yourself up to be destroyed by doing such awful things, mm -hmm. you know. And, and, it was, and his message got through and around um, so that it was something like over a million people connected to it. In, yeah. in it Russia. was really well done. 
really well done. And these kinds of nonviolent things. But um, I think there's a part that I uh, I see that that a lot of it's going to play itself out uh, in in other ways that are kind of beyond us. So uh, part of my mindset is is if I can use an image from football, uh, and I'm not talking American football, I'm talking world football. You're talking about the real football. Soccer. Yeah, <laughs> soccer. You're speaking to two soccer families, so oh, you're good, in a safe good, place. Good, good, good. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like Russians that have been banned from European soccer. That's so great. But, you know, in soccer, uh, you never pass the ball to where the player is. You pass the ball to where the player's going to be. Mm. And I think that a lot of our... Uh, of our thinking as peacemakers and conflict transformers is to think of where things are going to be um, so that we're not just, you know, you know, and I'm doing it like everybody else, checking today's news and see, you know, what's what happened on day, you know, 28 of the sure. invasion, whatever. But um, uh, instead to be to be thinking, you know, where are things going to be? How can we how can we uh, get physical and personal resources uh, uh, to support people, both in Ukraine and in Russia. So we know that the problems in the rest of the world don't press pause just because something is erupting in one other part of the country or of the, of the world. So how has the situation in Ukraine affected other hotspots around the world? With the focus now on Ukraine, are there other places where needs are being neglected? Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there were major conflicts going on that, uh, that have touched me personally in, in Myanmar, in, uh, uh, in Yemen. And I live in the city of Hamtramck in Michigan, which is completely surrounded by Detroit. And we became the first Muslim majority city in the U.S. and Muslim mayor and city council. Uh, and the largest ethnic group in our city are Yemenis. And so, you know, we have a lot of connection to Yemenis uh, at personal levels. Uh, we also have uh, have been involved in Ethiopia. Uh, so what's going on there is is um, a big concern. And, and I think that... Uh, some of these conflicts, uh, you know, a lot of people might say, you know, is it is it uh, you know racist or whatever to have the focus on a European conflict? I think the Ukraine conflict is a, on a different order and magnitude uh, because it it is uh, it's got potential for global impact, yes. and yes. and if we cross into the use of chemical, biological, or God forbid, nuclear weapons. Right. We're going to be in a whole different ballgame than, you know, Yemen, for as horrific as it is, it's kind of contained. And, sure. And, you know, yeah, there's countries like Saudi Arabia involved and so on. Uh, but uh, Ethiopia is contained, horrific as it is. And but one of the things that happens is that, you know, all, all the aid, all the especially, you know, Yemen's in massive famine and, and uh, Tigray is in massive famine area in Ethiopia. And so um, a lot of those kind of aid things are going to be siphoned off. And, and that's going to be a really, really horrific thing. Um, uh, one of the things that I think is so important, and this has been my life work, if you will, is lifting up and training indigenous peacemakers mm. um, uh, to uh, 
to, and so we've had this 10-day training. Uh, I call it the, the grad school of the University of the Streets, uh, <laughs> training in conflict transformation. We use experiential education models, and we use the Bible in a participatory way, an elicitive way where people dig up, up, you know, up, up on their own. Um, I'm retired now, by the way. Uh, and, but every day I'm doing something related to, I was uh, doing some connections with somebody from Central African Republic and Burundi, uh, both people that I've trained, um, uh, and, uh, they're doing amazing peace work uh, in their country. And the guy from Burundi is just hired on with Tear Fund from the UK, an organization I've worked on for and trained their peace building staff. And uh, this fellow from Burundi is now kind of working throughout Francophone Africa um, with Tear Fund. And, and it's so exciting to see the next generation uh, uh, carrying on. And, and, uh, and, in discussion with a guy from Uganda. I'm going to share a bit about him. His name's uh, uh, Philip Kakangulu, um, and uh, he's got connections to Baptists in the U.S. Uh, supported. He, uh, but um, Philip uh, and Sharon and I were doing some training with Tear Fund in, in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, and uh, uh, Philip was a graduate of our 10-day uh, training in Kenya in 2013. And, and so, you know, I've had this mentoring relationship with him. And when you're mentoring, you know, kind of want to support them, help them grow and all that. And so we're kind of designing who's going to do what during different things. And I, as, a, as a wonderful mentor, I asked Philip, you know, what would you like to do? And, and he said, I'd like to do the section on Exodus th 3 and 4 about conflict as holy ground. Now, that is my baby. I mean, I came up with that and it's brilliant what I do, you know, and it's just fantastic. And now he wants to do my thing, you know? And so, you know, I kind of grit my teeth, but as a mentor, I say, okay, you can do it. He does it better than me. And I'm sitting watching what he's doing and the pure genius <laughs> of how he took what he'd learned from me and took it uh, to a whole other level. Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, it's like this sense of, yeah, I'm the mentor, but the torch has been passed and God's mm -hmm. doing some really great things with these new peacemakers, um, you know. And, and so there's there's folks like that in Ukraine that you, Veronika is one of those. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's, there's uh, uh, you know, Fyodor, uh, he, he wasn't my student. <laughs> he and I were colleagues, but just seeing how he thinks and what he's involved with. Um, in so many areas, and and so uh, the seeding of people to do things uh, back back a hundred years ago, you know, we hadn't seen Gandhi's work in India. We hadn't seen Dr. King and the the civil rights movement in the U.S. Uh, there were th nonviolent things that were going on, but um, people were kind of struggling with it, trying to make it up as they went along. The Danish resistance to Hitler, for example, you know, mm -hmm. these guys, people trying to do things. Well, you know, Putin is going to find that Ukraine is not starting at zero like Denmark did under Hitler. Uh, they're starting with a lot of experience, a lot of people that know what they're doing and, and connections. And, and so it, one of the hilarious things that they did and, and, uh, Somebody somewhere, I'm sure, learned about this because this happened in 
and I think the Nor Norwegian resistance to, to the Nazis. But um, uh, as the Russians were starting the invasion, uh, they, the Ukrainians destroyed all the street signs. And, and road signs, Genius. or if they left them up, you know, like the big highways, you know, they, they had all the roads leading to The Hague, the International Criminal Court. <laughs> brilliant. <you know? laughs> brilliant. Brilliant stuff. Just brilliant. Yes. You know, witty. Go directly to jail, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and I read today a news report that Russia is trying to recruit people familiar with their Ukrainian roads. Yeah, good luck. Because even though they've got, you know, uh, you know satellite uh, GPS stuff, evidently it's not working uh well enough for them they're they're getting lost they don't know their way around and uh you know i would volunteer to help the ukrainians i was gonna say i have a son who is would be great at this kind of subterfuge he's nine he's been training his whole life for this so the ukrainians yes. can have him <laughs> yes i can just imagine somebody you know agreeing and volunteering and then taking him down the wrong way and then yes. you know, disappearing and and so you know it's like we are at a different place now than we were 100 years ago about nonviolent struggle. That's such there's, a good word. Yeah. That's so encouraging. Been, yeah. And one of my mentors is a guy named George Lakey. Uh, George is retired. He's, gosh, I think he just turned 80. But uh, he's, he's one of the great uh, trainers. And, you know, my wife and I both trained under him at the Training for Change. Um, they're producing a documentary film about him and his life wow. work. But uh, George is, is talking a lot about nonviolence and, and Ukraine. And, uh, and it's just uh, the, the, the theory of people like George and, and of course, King and Gandhi and uh, uh, Gene Sharp and how these have been, been spread throughout the world. And so like in a country like Myanmar, with this military coup, the, the, as horrible as that's been, and it has been horrible, and I have many, many dear friends there and here quite a bit. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've done training there, and they have a lot of, of creativity uh, in the resistance to the coup that's, uh, that's going on. And, and so a lot of it doesn't make the news, but occasionally you'll hear things that come up and make the news. And, and uh, so these kinds of things give me hope. Um, Good. Uh, they don't mean that it's going to be an easy, easy thing at all. It's going to be a long, long struggle. But uh, um, so, Dan, I think uh, I've life got, will win out. Good. I, I've got one last question for you before Autumn asks you our final question, and it's it's a rather lengthy one. Uh, so let me work through it. Um, we have been expressing a deep, deep concern over last decade or so about this global trend that seems to be shifting in some places of the world towards authoritarian governances and rule, uh, totalitarian governments, uh, the strong man uh, running as, um, as president or prime minister in these, some of these countries. Uh, even here in the United States, we suffered under a presidency that was authoritarian in nature, at least. They wanted to be authoritarian. That is a deep concern for us. What can people of good faith do to combat, it seems, this, this shift in uh, people wanting to support this authoritarianism 
and totalitarianism. What can we do to combat that? I mean, we see it on a global level. We see it on a national level. But what we're seeing here in places like Norman, Oklahoma, is that it is coming to roost here uh, in our city governments, in our school boards. There are people of good faith that need to stand up and decry this, this shift. But what can we do to not only resist, but to offer another way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the the words of Jesus are really good. If if uh, you know your brother or sister has something against you, go and talk. If uh, they have something against you, go and talk. It is kind of like whoever's faulted is the 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 call from Jesus is to go and talk. Um, and I think that that sometimes you know we we on our part also join in that that divisiveness and that separation and mirror what the people that we criticize are doing. Um, and um, we have a tool called, uh, it's called in some places the social barometer and the other spectrum of allies, but it breaks things down from, you know, the, the, the people on your side, the, the leading activists, the active allies, the passive allies, the other side's got their leading activists and their, you know, active opponents and passive opponents, and then there's people in the middle. And one of the things we talk about is different strategies for how to move people one slot over toward you. You know, not to make everybody think like we think, because that ain't going to happen. So don't spend any energy (laughs) worrying (laughs) or hoping about that, because that won't happen. But if you can move people one slot over, if you can make somebody who's an active opponent passive, then that helps your movement. If you can take somebody who's neutral and make him a passive ally, you know, where they'll sign, you know, your petition or, you know, wear a ribbon or do something minor. Uh, that helps your movement. One of the things in that is that as you look at the opponents, is that you you build relationships with them. And that that is so critical is to not demonize the other, but to build relationships. And, and, um, and I think that that is so critical to first bring down the rhetoric intensity uh, because, and, and that's very, very important. There's a group in the U.S. Uh, called Braver Angels, and it's uh, it's red and blue folks, uh, Republican and Democrat, who are agreeing to talk with each other. And they, they, they have a leadership that's mixed. They have uh, events that, uh, that will deal with a particular issue, and they'll have the same number of people on each side talking about it. Uh, you know, it's it's a form of debate, but it's debate held within the relationship that says we have to be together and we have to find a way to, to, to live that out. So there are people who are doing it. Now, that's not coming, at least I don't, I'm not aware of it coming from a faith perspective, you know, but I've seen some of their debates. So I'm on their mailing list now and see some of their stuff. And, and I think that that's a part of what we need to do in our country. And, and, um, and I think a part of it is is that we are facing global uh, challenges that are, uh, I, I mean, the biggest one that is getting lost in all the current invasion is climate change, you know, which is going to be so catastrophic. It is so catastrophic. It's a slow-moving disaster. And this past week, there was something about uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, Arctic and Antarctic areas breaking uh, temperature records. 
and one place the temperature record was broken by 27 degrees. Yeah, it was ridiculous. The record broken. You know, it's that's like that's not slow. That's, that's not slow. You know, and it's like, um, and so so when you f take a look at these kind of things and feel out of control, fear becomes the big thing, and and authoritarians speak to that fear. You know, it's like Hitler used fear brilliantly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, both fear of the uh, the Jews, fear of you know, kind of the other European nations who had beat him up after World War One and treated you know such a uh, bad peace agreement, et cetera, et cetera. He just turned that fear into you know first belief in him and then the aggression, and and that's a part of that uh, cycle of traumatized people who become victimizers, the aggressor offender cycle that we spoke about. Uh, when we're talking about Rizpa, you know, and it's like, um, uh, I think that, that how do we overcome that fear? Jesus said, um, you know, I, I, I'm blanking here, but, uh, you know, oh, Paul, you know, uh, perfect love casts out fear. Is mm -hmm. it Paul? Yeah. I'm blanking. <laughs> um, anyway, the scriptural verse, perfect sure. love casts out fear. Uh, and I think that that's a real thing that we need to work on as people of faith and and to connect to uh, our sisters and brothers who who are in the grips of fear in terms mm -hmm. of how they are are trying to work work out uh, how they relate to the world. Um, well, Reverend Dan, we appreciate uh, you stopping by Good Faith Weekly. You have given us a lot to think about today. We really appreciate all the hard work, and it's hard work. I mean, just listening to you talk about how to really advocate for peace, I mean, this isn't something that's simple and easy. It's hard work that we must be engaged in. We're continuing to think about all these hot spots around the world, Myanmar, uh, Yemen, um, and, of course, uh, Ukraine. Uh, lots going on in the world where people of faith can be engaged and advocating for a pathway towards peace. And so thank you so much uh, for being with us today. You've really given us a lot to ponder and to ch and challenged us to, to be peace agents. So thank you for that. But sir, before we let you go, Autumn's got one last question for you. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. In light of our conversation with you around peace and Ukraine and hope, what is your more to tell? Oh, my, I think my life Bible verse is uh, Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Mm. And we are, we see that at the personal level. We see that at the global level. Uh, we see that at community level. So th those things that suck us in and try to corrupt who we are as persons to respond in kind to the evils done to us, um, that if instead we cannot be overcome, the battleground is, is not just in Ukraine. It's not just in the highways coming into Kiev. It's in my own heart and mind. Mm -hmm. And so if if I struggle there not to be overcome by evil, instead, my task is to overcome evil with good. How can I be the one that brings the good into the situation? And that's how conflicts get transformed by doing that oh. simple but profound and difficult thing. I love <laughs> that. 
Thank you so much. Reverend Dr. Dan Buttry, prolific author. For those listening, uh, after you click off this podcast, make sure to go pick up one of uh, Dan's books because, I mean, they are extremely intriguing and uh, very transformative. So thank you, sir, for being with us this week. Thank you. Blessings on you all. And to our listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly. As always, Autumn and I will be back next week with another outstanding guest. Until then, keep living good faith.